Hey, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Bradley Campbell and he is an intern, he is a integrative holistic doctor, uh, practitioner north of uh, Chicago, Illinois. He is also an internist in uh, chiropractic and acupuncture. And uh, yeah, how are you doing today? Great, great. Just had a really good uh, morning workout and uh, excited to talk to you and educate some people on health and the immune system. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So maybe just for the audience, you could tell us a little bit about what you do, maybe explain for people who might not be as familiar, the difference between integrative holistic medicine and say naturopathic or, you know, allopathic and yeah, give us a little overview of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm uh, Dr. Bradley Campbell. This is my dog, Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter. He pops in once in a while in my videos and stuff because he goes to the office with me. Um, so I, uh, have been practicing for five years I went to chiropractic and naturopathic school, but finished with my chiropractic degree and got a couple subspecialty degrees in internal medicine and acupuncture. And I'm finishing some others and then also went to acupuncture school. Um, but naturopathic integrated and holistic are all kind of similar. It's very similar to functional medicine. They're all kind of like different brandings for a very similar form of medicine, which is really just trying to get to the root cause of the problem and view the person as like a big picture perspective, um, which is really just good medicine is like, how about the whole person and their whole mind, body, spirit, and their whole like structural system, their biochemistry and nutrition and their emotional body too. So you're really trying to view the whole person, their whole life, their whole family history and get to the root cause of what's going on. And integrative means integrating different aspects of conventional and alternative. Holistic is like that big picture view. And then naturopathic is a specific type of doctor who incorporates natural modes of treatment before going to more allopathic or synthetic or pharmaceutical drugs and surgery forms of treatment. Yeah, awesome. I love it. Um, what made you choose to go in that direction? I, so I guess, you know, going to the more holistic integrative versus the allopathic and then why specifically that versus functional or naturopathic? Yeah. Um, some people have a bad rap of chiropractic or naturopathic. They're like, oh, those are just the people who couldn't get into med school. And that was the farthest thing from the truth. Oh yeah. I, uh, it's, it's actually yeah. <laughs> more extensive. I, yeah, I personally have it's, looked into it's it. Harder, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. We had like a 50% dropout rate in my class because it was that hard. They're almost like trying to compensate for that fact that they think there's still this narrative of like, it's not legitimate. But the problem is in some countries, chiropractors are like a one-year school, but in America, it's like a four-year school. In New Mexico, you can even prescribe some medications. So you have a pretty extensive four-year training actually. Um, and they're working on residencies and internships and all that afterwards, but it's a pretty tough, rigorous schooling with more clinical and classroom hours than even traditional medical school. 
But the reason why I did that was I won the philosophy I liked way better than allopathic, even though saving someone's life is extremely important. I think getting to the root cause and spending a lot of time with each patient was a much better form of healthcare that I valued. And um, that's the way that my chiropractor worked growing up. He wasn't like a rack him, crack him. He was a spend a lot of time with you, figure out what was really going wrong. And every time I had like medical doctors come into my undergraduate college to talk to us about like which profession or specialty or which med school to go to, they were kind of like low energy, low vibration, low frequency, really down on med school, even veterinary school. They were kind of like, mm, it's really hard. It's competitive. It's like eight, 12 years of your life. You're never going to get back kind of thing rather than like school was great. I love my life. They were like, I'm divorced. My wife raises my kids. Like it's really hard and stressful. And every chiropractor I met was just like best career ever. Do it. You make your own job. You like your own, you're, you are your own boss. You get to work the whatever hours you want. You don't like, you can be on call if you want. You can set your own price schedule. Like they were just so happy and vital and healthy. And a lot of the medical doctors I talked to were not as healthy, not as happy. So it was pretty clear cut for me is like, well, do I want to be healthy or not kind of thing. And not to say that there aren't healthy medical doctors, but I think, you know, eight to 12 years of a really tough education really wears a lot of their health down. So they're kind of like starting in a negative place when they get out of school where they have to kind of like rebuild their health and energy and vitality a lot of times. Yeah, totally. So let's uh, dive into the, the current virus that is, uh, you know, being discussed quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and uh, tell me your thoughts on what it is, how it might be similar or different to other, you know, coronavirus that we, we you know, the common cold is a coronavirus as well. So uh, yes. yeah, so tell me some of your thoughts on, on that. Um, so the common cold is a coronavirus. Um, basically, the, I call it the C illness, right? For the Corona-19 um, right. <laughs> to try to avoid whatever, like, cause my account was deleted a few weeks back, even though I was just citing like science and giving an interpretation on it. And I actually doubled since then. So like, we're trying to somewhat avoid the censorship while also just give like science-backed info. But what's interesting is um, the C illness is similar to, more similar to SARS and MERS than it is to the common cold. Sure. Um, a lot of people were like, oh, it's like a really bad flu, but it's different than the flu, even though it does look similar to the flu. Um, so what it is, is it's basically a virus that has different parts that we've never really seen before. So it is fairly new, even though it's closest to SARS and MERS, it acts what we thought was more of like a lung illness where it would cause like an ammonia. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding out is it's actually more of a vasculitis. So the blood vessels get inflamed and leak fluid into where there's a lot of blood vessels, which is typically your lungs and sometimes your brain is where you have the most tiny blood vessels or capillaries where there's a blood oxygen exchange, but that's where the most surface area is in your blood vessels. So you end up leaking the most fluid into your lungs and into your brain, and then you get brain swelling. The loss of smell is actually like the neurons in the frontal part of your brain to your nose where you lose smell. And so everyone's like, well, how do I re gain my smell. Well, you have to just wait for those nerves to regrow. Um, but it, it's basically a vasculitis. It's a vascular condition. And unfortunately, because 90% of America is either overweight or has cardiovascular disease or both, it, we're at high risk for bigger side effects or long-term effects or like higher mortality from this than 
if we were a healthy population. So I just want to ask, there, there are lots of other viruses or, um, you know, infections and so forth that could cause this type of vasculitis, correct? Correct. Yeah, there are, um, there's like viral pericarditis and there are other things that cause different vasculitis or pneumonitis, um, like radiation can cause something that looks similar. There's a lot of things that like mimic it. Yeah. Um, and it, there's never really one germ that causes an illness. It's always a constellation of what's your terrain like versus just the germ. And so like how your overall health right. is at any moment in time drastically changes how you interact with germs. But then all of the germs, the billions of other germs in your body that you're exposed to and what levels you have them at in your body also impacts greatly how the C illness impacts you. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is the mumps virus drastically changes your symptomatology to the C illness. At first, we thought that the we found like people with high MMR titers from previous injections, mm-hmm. um, a lot of children. If you have high MMR titers, they were finding like, wow, the people who have high MMR titers don't really die, don't really get major symptomatology with the C illness. So like, well, it's probably the measles because the measles virus looks very similar to the C virus. But what we learned is it's really not that at all. Like logically that would make sense. However, we now know it's actually the mumps virus is the one that matters. So if you've had mumps, if you've had a natural mumps infection when you were young, Uh you're much less likely to have major symptoms from the C illness. Or if you have recent high titers from the injections of MMR with the mumps antibodies, you're also less likely to have a major presentation of the C illness. So it's all very complex. And that's fascinating. Very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I was I pers- enough research on it. There's good research on it, but like they're kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But if anything, that would be like almost a cure. Like that's another way to basically like protect people. Sure. Um, so it, it's like, why would we not maybe even like a lot of people in the natural health community don't like the MMR injection, but mm-hmm. if that could actually save lives, it's like, well, why would we not use that when that's time tested and relatively safe and has much less reported side effects than the current injections. So it's just like another option to kind of like toss out there for people to consider. To at least look at, yeah. That, no, yeah. That's, a that's lot of the uh, doctors in around Chicago were actually going to like get their titers checked and up their MMR shots in January, February when all this research was coming out. How interesting. Um, I yeah. personally was born with congenital rubella. So oh. I was not given the MMR. <laughs> that's really interesting, yeah. Because yep. I had antibodies to rubella, obviously. Um, yep. that, that's how that works. <laughs> so that's a great segue to discuss uh, some of the treatments. And I think before we get into, you know, some of the discussions about injections mm-hmm. and how that works, maybe we could talk about some of the treatments that are out there. Why are they not being you know, discussed more? Why are they not being promulgated? Why are you know, that, how effective are they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, there's a lot of treatments that existed in China and in the Eastern countries of the world that um, were highly effective. They were using a combination of allopathic or like Western medicine with Chinese medicine and getting amazing results. But the problem is in the United States, you can't patent or make a lot of money in the pharmaceutical or insurance industry off of herbal remedies because they're not patentable and that's like a proprietary formula. 
So I think it's really has to do with money per se. Um, Cause I know Pfizer is about to come out with a new medication. Um, and they're saying basically once they kind of like reach the set point of like they've inject as many people as they can, they're going to basically try to approve a medication to get a medication approved for the C illness, because then they can make more money off of that. Like once they made all the money off their injections, they'll either go to booster injections or they'll go to like finally FDA approved treatments for the C illness. And then there's more money to be made off of it. So there have been lots of good research by like the Institute of Functional Medicine, IFM.org. They have like some natural and allopathic protocols that have some research backed up on their website behind it. We posted some of that on my own nonprofit website, which is healthassurancemovement.org, um, which is basically like IFM with some Chinese medicine incorporated into it. But like Bonlan Gen is woed. People have been talking about like Dr. Fauci has been taking vitamin D, C, zinc, and um, I believe quercetin even all year. So it's like, why have we not been told about some of these natural support mechanisms that could have helped you? And there are also the people who are wondering, well, what about the HCQ? What about ivermectin? What about some of these other like in um, nebulized steroids? Or people are talking about, you know, just general steroids or antivirals and all kind of stuff. So there's a lot of treatments out there. And um, we're learning as we go on what's the most effective for prevention and treatment. But it's, it is strange that a lot of the treatments that have shown really good success in their, in multiple trials, multiple doctors experience, multiple hospitals around the world have not gotten as much publicity as some of the other methods. Yeah. Very interesting. So maybe we can discuss uh, the injections and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what is, what are the traditional mechanisms and how is this one different? Yeah. So some people don't even want to call it the V word, right? right. The vax. Um, they're like, it's not, it's a pharmaceutical injection or it's a pharmaceutical therapeutic drug or whatever it is. Because traditionally, um, a vax was basically a live or inactive virus or germ that was injected into somebody on a small level. And then you build an immune response, usually antibodies, mm -hmm. to fight against that at the time. And then, like, to that your body saves in memory to fight if it gets exposed to that germ later. Right. However, these don't work that way. It's a little bit more advanced. It's kind of like giving, instead of injecting a little bit of like peanut, like an allergy shot, because a lot of times like a vax works like an allergy shot. You inject a little bit of peanut to build up your immune system, like an allergy shot to the peanut. But instead of injecting a little bit of virus or a little bit of peanut, the antigen that you react to, you're injecting like the cookbook. So you're injecting the mRNA, which then tells your ribosomes, which is like your protein making factory in the cells to, it's a messenger RNA, which is basically like the code or the recipe in the cookbook. Mm -hmm. You're injecting the cookbook. And it's a synthetic create, messenger RNA. It's a correct? synthetic messenger RNA created in the lab that basically tells your body to cook up a spike protein or a spike protein fragment. And basically you create the peanut, you create the spike protein fragment um, instead of injecting it. So it's like one extra step rather than injecting the germ itself, they're injecting a piece of the germ. And the thought was that then you're less likely to get sick from the injection, um, but they're actually finding there's a lot more reported reactions than ever before, um, which is not really great. But what happens is you create these spike protein fragment. It usually lasts like just a few days in your body. Um, 
they say it's locally, it only stays local to the injection site, but they're actually finding it lodged in like the lung and kidney and other sites. So it might, it likely spreads throughout your body and you build antibodies up against it. And in two weeks, you have a pretty good antibody response to those spike protein fragments and they end up degrading and you're left with a really, generally a really, really high level of antibodies against the spike protein. So that would be uh, the mRNA technology. There's also one that uses a viral vector to the DNA. Yes. Can you explain a little how those differ and yep. what the pros and cons might be? Yep, so the mRNA um, is almost the same as the DNA injections, except the DNA injections have one more step, which is, um, so it's one more step. And then the other difference is that the mRNA use in order to get that mRNA into the cell, then encapsulate it in something called PEG, which is like a lipid coating or shell to then shuttle the mRNA into each cell. Whereas the DNA, instead of using a PEG encapsulation, they use an adenovirus encapsulation, which is kind of like a cold. It's another type of virus. This is a monkey virus that they haven't okay. really used before. Okay, I heard before. it was chimpanzee. Is it monkey? Yeah. Okay. No, maybe chimpanzee. Yeah, it's basically a non-human virus um, from some type of ape that was then uses shuttles the DNA into the cell, um, and then the DNA goes to the nucleus, like the heart of where your own DNA is, and the DNA acts as like another cookbooker code to create mRNA, and then this process becomes the same. So basically, it's this, the DNA is the same kind of steps as the mRNA just has a different encapsulation to get the DNA into the cell. And there's one more step because the DNA goes to your own DNA and creates mRNA, which then creates the spike protein. So it's like one added step. Okay. And what is, can you, for my audience, I think a lot of people don't know what PEG is, and I think there are some potential consequences with PEG. Yes. So PEG is polyethylene glycol. Mm -hmm. It's in a lot of cosmetics and foods, and um, it can be really harmful. It's like considered one of the five most toxic ingredients in cosmetics. Um, even though people are like, well, I put it all over myself. I'm like, well, why do you also think a lot of people get cancer? Like 50% mm -hmm. of women get cancer. So why do you think women get more cancer than men? It's probably because they're more sensitive to hormone disrupting chemicals, one of which could be PEG. Um, or like plastics and all the chemicals we're surrounded with on our furniture and car fumes and, you know, all the stuff, food. So it's just one more chemical. So it's likely not going to be a huge deal, but it is somewhat concerning that we're injecting it rather than putting it topically on us or consuming it edibly in certain foods because PEG, polyethylene glycol is you, if you just Google like PEG carcinogenic, Right. Usually it says, yes, it is likely carcinogenic because it's almost always contaminated with something called EO, ethylene oxide, which is like a 10 out of 10 carcinogen. Also, both are considered reproductive or fetal toxins. Right. Um, and there's no real proof of whether or not the EO is in the jab or not in the injection. However, the only research that has been done, basically I'm doing, which is I have it on like three patients now and it's, that's it. It's only three people because no one wants to actually test and find out, but there's a breakdown product of EO called HEMA, which is like two beta hydroxyl ethyl mercaptoric acid. Basically it's like, we're finding that people are peeing out the breakdown of ethylene oxide 
And when we test the before and after of their urine, after the injections, we're finding that there's this breakdown of ethylene oxide in their urine in a much higher level after they took the injection, which means we can kind of deduce that they're getting some dose of PEG ethylene oxide in the breakdown HEMA. And the good news is they're peeing it out. The bad news is it's getting injected into them. And PEG can cause systemic toxicity or allergic reactions. It's not common that it's an allergic reaction. Um, it's not common that systemic toxicity, but even PEG in cosmetics on like an open wound can cause infections or problems for people. Right. What are some of the, uh, what, how about twofold question here? <laughs> what are some of the, uh, negative or adverse reactions that we are seeing to the injections? And then what are some of the, uh, I guess, predicted that, you know, we won't see for a while? Yeah, it's really hard to predict the future. <laughs> Come on, take out the crystal had, ball. I mean, I know, I need the crystal isn't that right ball. behind Let's your, see. yeah. <laughs> um, so what's happening right now is, what we're learning is that the trial data was pretty inaccurate as far as reporting the adverse reactions. And the best thing we have is VARES. There was also an app that was being used to track data in the United States. Um, so they were trying to track it in a few different ways, but the app did not have transparent data. So most people were reporting to VARES, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And that's and still a VARES, very small percent, correct? Like yeah, 10%. VARES is typically like 1% to 10% of reported results or reactions. However, right now, everyone's kind of more aware that they're could be reactions. So they think more people are reporting than normal. Okay. And it's, they're just reports. It's technically illegal to report anything to VAERS if it's inaccurate, like that would be an actual like federal crime. Wow. So people are like, well, anyone can go report something, which is true. However, you don't want to do anything illegal and you don't want to, most people aren't liars, I think, or like trying to deceive, like who's got time to go do that? Honestly, it's kind of <laughs> hard. Really? <laughs> and, um, yeah. So anyways, you can go like read the reports if you want on the government websites, but there's been a lot and of that reports. is worth I think that's worth stressing that it is typically 1%. That's a very small percent. So we'll go right. On. So yeah. typically the number of actual adverse reactions are much higher. And in the trials, there was somewhere between 20 to 55% adverse events, whether it's mild to severe. Right. Um, the Johnson Johnson had more um, reactions, I believe, than the mRNA runs. Um, but um, yeah. And we also learned, like I was, let me circle back. So the trial data was like a hundred degrees wrong in terms of how people were reacting to these things. Mm -hmm. Kind of like at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought 10 to 15% of people were going to die if they got the C illness. We're learning it's more like 0.2% for the overall population. It's like 10% over 90. If you're over 90 years old, it is like 10%, but for but so is the big flu, picture, right? Sorry. It's pretty high. Yeah. I don't actually know what the flu stats are for someone over that age, but it's not good either. Right. Um, so exactly. So in the trial data, 0.2% of women or the whole trial got lymphatic swelling in their left armpit, like usually where the injection was, but in real life, it's about 16%, which means they were almost a hundred degrees wrong. Kind of like they were hundred degrees wrong about the mortality. The trials, even though it was like 44,000 people and 22,000 got injected with the non-placebo. And it was nice because they actually used a saline placebo, which is not, usually they use another injection. So they actually used a good placebo, which was a better trial than normal, but they were hundred degrees wrong about the fact that um, they missed the lymphatic swelling, which is mimicking cancer on mammograms. 
Um, it's not cancerous, but like they're saying, wait to get your mammogram because if you have the lymphatic swelling, you could get a false reading on the mammogram and then do a biopsy for no reason. Sure. Um, so what we're finding is that there's a lot of other reactions like why they stopped the Johnson & Johnson AstraZeneca. We're finding more vasculitis, kind of like the C illness will cause vasculitis. We're finding that the spike proteins that are in the antibodies against them are, are also seeming to cause vasculitis in a large depend what you believe, small or large percent of people. Um, there's been reported over 3,500 deaths. There's been over 8,000 hospitalizations, 16,000 urgent care visits, 20, about 20,000 office visits, 700 Bell's palsy, 889 heart attacks, 152 miscarriages, 6,000 severe allergic reactions, 600 thrombocytopenia, low platelets, a lot of tinnitus, ringing in the ears, um, other really strange reactions. Um, and like we said, we don't know if those are 100% accurate, but if you actually go read them, it's pretty obvious that most of them are clinically from a historical detect medical detective standpoint, most of them are likely related to the injection because it was like, I got the injection. Then within a few hours, it was like stuff happened. It'd be different if it was the reports were mostly like, well, I got the injection. And then like, you know, like five weeks later, I wasn't feeling so good. I got like a stomach bug and then I died, right? So you look at the timeline to sort of clue you into whether this was more of a cause or a correlation. And a lot of the timelines are pretty insidious as far as like, a lot of these are likely causative, not just a correlation, but you have to go read them and you'd have to actually go like medically investigate. And the unfortunate thing is we'll never really know which were correlation and which were causation, but it's not really nice to tell people, the mainstream media is basically telling people like, that's fake, don't believe it. It's a false, inaccurate reporting system. Anyone can report it and they're not investigating it. So it's kind of like you have all this pharmaceutical trauma happening and no one's acknowledging the trauma of all these victims, which is the biggest like red flag, I think, is like, hello, we have all these people who are saying we have 118,902 people who are saying they've had extreme reactions. And it might even be a million, might be 10 million people who are having reactions. And we're just going to ignore that. Like that doesn't go so well. No, no. I think it's just another iteration of all the gaslighting that we are seeing in other aspects of the current milieu. But yeah, yes. no, definitely. And I think that that creates its own, you being a holistic practitioner, definitely understand the, the ramifications of the emotional traumas and how that affects us systemically. So certainly at a time when we need to be boosting our immunity, uh, it probably doesn't behoove us to be treating uh, people who have had adverse reactions and giving them tra traumatic uh, responses, as well as by proxy, those around them. So, Right. Yeah, I think the gaslighting is big. There was a, um, a person I knew who, well, there's, I've had, unfortunately, I've known more people who have died after the injection, soon after injection, than I have from the sea illness itself, which is kind of wild. Um, but there's people who will like have a horrible reaction. Oh, wait a second. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm Sorry. here. I think, yeah. I think there was like a call that came through or something. So, oh, um, let me turn my phone off on the airplane. So there was a person who had a really bad reaction to his injection or soon after the injection and all of his joints like swelled up. It almost looked like he had like an infective arthritis. 
um, went to his doctors, some of the best in Chicago, and they like drew fluid out of it, did a whole bunch of lab testing and more testing and more testing and specialists and specialists. And then after like all of that testing, they said, we can't find anything. It's probably from the injection. But in that like one or two week process, when he was like laid out in bed, couldn't do his normal job or you know, it took hours just to like get up and out of bed. There's no admission of like, well, maybe this was the injection. I'm sure he was thinking it the whole time, but the doctors were like, no, it's something else. We haven't heard of this. It must not be anything. So it's like when you have a new pharmaceutical intervention, it makes sense that like perhaps if something really weird happens for no known reason after this new thing, maybe you could say this could be caused by it. And only like one of the doctors was eventually like, you know what? This was probably that, but we don't, we're not going to say for sure. And we're not going to report it. Wow. So it's yeah. kind of interesting. So there's, I'm seeing, hearing and seeing a lot of that going on, which is really unfortunate. Um, but there's gaslighting happening on the other side of the spectrum, which is actually what made me start speaking out more was I saw a lot of natural health practitioners who I looked up to who were saying, you know, there is no pandemic. Um, people aren't actually dying like the hospital. I mean, the news was putting up some fake pictures right? Like they would, they only have like an hour or two sometimes to make a news story. So sometimes they'll use old media without realizing it was old media or like an intern will like just find Google, like an image of someone in a hospital who's dying and like, oh, that's not a real person. It's a fake person from like a medical school because they're just trying to like create a quick story. So there's some of that going on, but um, there's a lot of people in the natural health field who are kind of like either over-exaggerating the risks of the injection or they were kind of like under exaggerating the risks of the sea illness. And I think it's kind of like what's going on in India right now. Mm-hmm. Even if the, even if the PCR tests had too many reproductive cycles and were getting a lot of false positives, even if someone died from COVID or with the sea illness, like even if they had the germ and they died from it, or they were in like a car accident and they tested positive for the sea illness like the day before, but the car accident killed them, whatever it was, there were definitely more people dying than usual last year. And there's a lot of people who are like, that's all fake. That's not actually happening. Nothing is going on. And like you go to New York City and talk to those people. You talk to the hospitalists who I've talked to from the New York um, hospital systems. Like there was definitely something going on. um, And there's definitely something new happening. Um, But there was some gaslighting even from the natural community towards people who had the sea illness or long haulers and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's when I was really like, okay, this is ridiculous. It was especially ridiculous from like the allopathic side and illogical lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. And then we got the natural community doing this other ridiculous thing. I was like, all right, I just got to like be this moderate voice in the middle for people. Or, or I, I mean, I actually don't even see you that way. I see you as a, someone who's searching for truth. You know, you're looking for what's actually well, going exactly. on. Um, you exactly. know, I, I, Personally, I just, I have a site that, you know, I think most of my audience now knows is called truthmatters.biz. And, you know, our initiative is really to find the facts. And, you know, of course I've got my bias, I'm human. Um, And I don't make any, you know, there's, there's no cover about that. You know, I'm very transparent about where my bias lies and, you know, it may change over time, but this is where I sit. And I think people should know that when they're reading my material or hearing me speak. However, I I like to lead with the facts so that people can make their own decisions and people know what they're dealing with. Because I think we're in a world right now where people are so bombarded with what to think, they've forgotten how to think, or they've never been taught how to think. And I think that's truly tragic. But I want to address a couple of things that you said. I think it's very interesting that through, you know, the journey of thinking that one side was uh, gaslighting or uh, pushing false information, you actually came to the 
uh, realization that there was a, a lot more going on on the other side as well. Um, and I, yeah. I've known that with my own my own self. So a lot of times I've done research to try and you know, prove something. And I found the exact opposite to be true. And that's when I know yep. that that's where the truth really lies because it goes against my own bias. And if you're an honest person with integrity, then hopefully you're willing to really look at that and examine that. So I really appreciate that and respect that in you. Um, and then I want to address that you were talking about India and New York. And so, you know, while there certainly may be inflated reporting on both sides occurring, I think that the other piece of the equation that people may not be so aware of is that, as you so uh, eloquently explained in the beginning, there are, you know, because we're human and we're so complex, you know, from every facet, but specifically intracellularly, there's so many different things at play when we have disease or illness or, you know, chronic conditions that we're facing. And so, you know, what's happening in India and New York, I think, isn't necessarily just the C virus. I think there are other components. You know, I, I've heard that India actually was a large portion of them have been vaccinated. Oops, you know, they've been uh, injected or um, and so I think that there's, you know, that's worth looking at. Um, there's yeah, also the I conditions think... of their lifestyle. And I also so I want you to I would love to hear you talk about both. But also in New York, you know, we had the with a regular virus, like when you have any kind of you don't I think part of the reason we have what we call a flu season is because people are kept inside. They're not getting as much uh exercise, activity, they're not around loved ones, they isolate, which we know being surrounded by loved ones is one of the best things we can do for our immune systems. Yes. Um, and, you know, we're also bundled up. So we're rebreathing our toxins and we're oxygen deprived. And I'm not just talking about, you know, with the SIVA, I'm talking about the regular flu. It's typically in cold yep. winter, you know, so and these are all the things that they've, in, they've uh, instructed for the treatment of C virus. And so I think that in some sense, that's created almost like a year round uh, condition. So I'd love you to yeah. talk about kind of both, both of them and explain how, you know, there's a lot more than meets the eye occurring. Yeah, there is a lot more that meets <laughs> the eye. Um, I think like there was a, not a huge chunk, but there was like 10% of um, India's population that got the injection. Um, oh, which is actually I read that fairly it was 62%. Oh, maybe. I think it might have been less. I think 62 okay. might have been like there's one smaller country that has like the most fully um, injected, like doubly injected um, okay. or both doses for those injected. And uh, they're not doing super hot. But what it does look like is that everywhere that it could be like a timeline thing, but basically whenever mm -hmm. there's mass injections given to any of these countries they yeah. all seem to have a little bit of a surge not like a big one but all of them seem to have like a little surge after they start doing all the injections and we don't know if that's because we're injecting and then people are relaxing and going about their day life and then spreading it more or if the injection is like lowering people's immune system or maybe they're catching new mutations that kind of thing or it's um we don't really know but what it does seem like is whenever we're injecting a large amount of people, there's like a small resurgence, which mm -hmm. could be not so great because if we, if that ends up happening from like booster shots, that could just keep resurging some of the stuff. Um, so that's one concern. Um, another concern is that, put my computer. Um, like you said, it's a big multifactorial issue. So 
there's how tightly knit people are in it, if their air quality is clean or not in New York City, if they're like really smushed in together, there's lots of like car smog um, or unclean air. Um, you were saying a lot of things, but like when people are locked in, when they're rebreathing bad air indoors, when they're not getting sunshine, because sunshine, movement, and physical touch are the biggest ways to increase your natural killer cells, which is like your initial defense that you can't even catch anything. So if you're not really getting that, that's going to cause some problems. It's not like in the winter, all of a sudden the flu virus comes out of the closet and is like, surprise, I'm coming for you. It's winter time. Like it's been there the whole year. Yeah. It's just the fact that your immune system is a little bit lower in the winter. It's not even supposed to be lower in the winter. It's just we've sort of coddled ourselves with heaters indoors and uh, not stay going outside, not moving as much in the winter, where really we should be moving more, bundling up more, using less heaters and just... Um, maybe building more fires and hanging out outdoors more and our bodies would know how to adapt to winter better. But because we're not really adapting to the cold, we're not moving as much, maybe we're eating more holiday food or junk food or sugar, um, we're not moving as much or getting as much sunlight, then we're more likely to see that flu start to infect people, I guess, or cause illness. Um, because one of the functions of viruses is to help people to detoxify and cleanse their cellular fluid and interstitial fluid. So if you're toxic, um, a detoxification reaction is nearly identical to a viral infection. Um, Symptomatology-wise, they're pretty much the same from like a common cold or the flu. So sometimes it's very hard clinically without running lab tests to tell if someone is detoxifying or cleansing with a virus. So there is a positive side of what viruses do for us. 8% of our DNA has been modified, is viral. So 8% of our DNA is actual viral material. And then 52% yeah. of our DNA has been modified by viruses. So when people are talking about like, oh no, our skin, this virus might change our DNA. It's like, great, that's what's supposed to happen. There, it's kind of like, you don't wanna do it synthetically. Right. But that is actually I was going to ask the, about that. Yeah. One of the, but like naturally, that's actually how we adapt to our internal external ecosystem and the way it balances. Um, so it's actually more like a software upgrade for your, or an update for your iPhone. It's like you can't avoid the update forever, just like you can't avoid dust or pollen. You can't avoid all germs forever. Even if you're indoors, you're not avoiding all the germs and you're 10 times more germ than you are human. So it's more like saying, I might postpone my update. I might wait till I have better health or more movement or more vitamin D or an injection or whatever I think is going to help support me. And then I'm going to go out into the world again and risk getting that new massive update that might crash my iPhone. But most people's iPhones are going to be fine. I mean, just, and just because someone looks healthy does not mean they are healthy. It's kind of like you might have an iPhone that was dropped in the toilet 20 times and you might have someone who has cancer and doesn't know it. They might look really vibrant and healthy on the outside, but they actually have a problem on the inside like heart disease or cancer or immune deficiencies, um, adrenal fatigue, low thyroid, all kinds of things that could lower their immune system, autoimmune issues. Sure. Um, so we really can't say like, well, that person, that young person or that 50 year old looked healthy, but then they died after the flu or they died after gonorrhea or they died after the illness because a lot of health is invisible. But the good news is 99.8% of people will adapt to this new system update just fine. And it's going to keep circulating until everyone has adapted because you, at the end of the day, the update is actually helping us balance our internal external ecosystem. It's not a negative, it's a positive. Right. And that's the big takeaway is like acknowledging the suffering while also realizing like 
viruses are good for us and they're part of how our bodies adapt to the ecosystem. Yeah, I love that so much. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about some of the benefits because our bodies are de are designed to detox. You know, as you said, eighty percent of us are viral components, uh, and you know different forms of bacteria. And so, what are some of the benefits of uh, maybe allowing our bodies to use its natural defenses versus uh, you know, trying these? Uh, I think it's kind of an oxymoron. It's a uh, prophylactic, uh, uh, but emergency treatment. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's how they're wording it. Cause you know, it's emergency, uh, only approved for emergency FDA use, you know, use, yeah. uh, but it's a prophylactic emergency. I'm like, uh, does anybody know English? Should we do vocabulary yeah. lessons here? Um, that I, I haven't wrapped my head around that one, but yeah. <laughs> If you could talk um, well, a little bit about, yeah, some of the pros and cons of allowing, you know, working with our body's natural defense and immunity yeah. versus, yeah. Um, well, the con of having natural immunity work is that you might be less likely to survive. Um, but if you're supporting yourself with some supplements or herbs or movement or exercise or sunshine or trying to get rid of your health conditions, if you have any um, that you know of, then you might feel like you can trust your natural immune system a little bit better. And right now having an, a healthy trust in a healthy body is freedom. Right now, like freedom comes from medical freedom and good health. Yeah. And a lot of that freedom has been taken away from other countries and Canada and Australia and the UK and all these places, and they're really struggling. So that's really unfortunate, whole nother conversation. But um, you might, if you're elderly, you might feel like you can't trust your natural immune system, which is unfortunately kind of sad because you're still probably 24 times more likely to die just driving around in a car than you are from the sea illness. But um, if you want to support your immune system with artificial means like an injection or like having medications on hand, or even if it's like having herbs and supplements ready to go or protocols ready to go, like that's probably good to prepare however you feel comfortable. But the problem is the, the downside of doing that is that the, the benefit is kind of like a short-term benefit for a long-term problem. And because the sea illness is likely going to keep mutating and become endemic, kind of like we might have a flu season every year, we might have a sea illness season every year until majority of people have sort of processed it or had it, or it might just kind of become the biggest bully in the room. It might become the new flu season. It might become the sea illness season kind of deal. Um, but the downside is that it's a short-term benefit. So the antibodies that you create might only last for four to six months. And then you might be actually more susceptible to future strains. Um, and we don't really know what the long-term negative consequences of having the injection build up so many antibodies to one specific strain will be. The other thing is that if you have a natural infection and a natural immune response and you develop really um, like 99.9% .9 of people do a really healthy, natural immune response to the sea illness, you're generally protected for years, if not for a decade or for life, which is extremely important to know. Um, I know Dr. Fauci came on like the news and basically said like, there's actually like four to eight studies that show that the injection is better than natural immunity, which I really disagree with because the studies he's citing, every single one was showing that it just creates a ton of antibodies against the spike protein. But we now know is that the spike protein antibodies are actually the least effective form of antibodies against the viral material. And there's other aspects of the virus 
where you create antibodies to other aspects like um, other nucleoproteins and glycoproteins and receptor binding domains, which are more important than the spike protein. So it's a good lesson for the injection companies, pharmaceutical companies to basically, maybe they should consider changing the injections to fight the parts of the virus that are actually more important than the spike protein. Like that was a good hypothesis, but it turns out it wasn't the most effective. So they can actually tweak them to make better ones. Um, but what that means is that building up tons of antibodies against the part that's not super helpful means that the natural immunity is actually showing a better effectiveness against the variants and it might last a lot longer. Our best evidence so far is showing that eight months in, there's a study showing eight months in, there's a study showing 12 months in, everybody who had a natural infection still has T cell memory and B cell memory, which means they can create more antibodies on their own whenever they need it, um, which basically means they should be protected in a much better way, a much safer way, and a much long-term way than having synthetic immunity from an injection. Oh, thank you. What about, can we talk a little bit about those spike proteins and what are, uh, you know, some, how do they work it, typically, like out, maybe not even with the C-bikes, yeah. we can include that, but just typically, and what are some of the consequences or potential adverse reactions that could occur with having, you know, this surge of spike protein yeah. response? Yeah. Yeah, so this is part of what creates the long hauler syndrome, which happens in some say about 10% of people who have the C illness who end up in the hospital. Um, they and can I'm have so sorry to interrupt, but this long haulers can occur with other conditions as well, correct? Yes, yeah. mono, Lyme disease. It's very yeah. similar to chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and all these things that, again, have been medically gaslighted for decades. So this is actually a good opportunity for conventional medicine today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Log haulers looks a lot like chronic fatigue, like Epstein-Barr, like mono, like all fibromyalgia, like all these other illnesses we've been pretending are all in your head. And maybe we should start to accept these and autoimmune issues and everything else that's been kind of ignored for decades. Yeah. Um, and just like given psych meds basically or pushed out of the door. Um, and then like Which naturopathic haven't... and functional docs have had to clean up the, the mess. Right. Instead. I was going to say, yeah, because that has its own set of problems, but yeah. <laughs> Right. Okay. So like mold and Lyme and all that like stuff. So post-viral fatigue issues. So um, the spike proteins basically are like, like a little hook that the viral material has kind of like Captain Hook. It like hooks into the cell to like find its way in. It like grabs onto stuff right. and helps insert the viral material into the cells and get the virus like into, into each cell. Um, and it can cause some problems, but it's really the antibodies against the spike protein that can react with 28 types of human tissue. So like your brain, your neurologic system, your bones, your reproductive system, skin, um, your liver, your spleen, there's a lot of different like organs and tissues and glands that 28 of them that the antibodies can cause an autoimmune response to if they're too high. And that's why we're likely seeing some of these autoimmune platelet or vascular issues, um, clotting issues. Um, it's not maybe super common, but it is fairly common. Um, and that explains a lot of that. And the blood work we are doing at my office pre and post injection is also showing a similar type like vasculitis or inflammatory reaction after the injections, which makes sense. The immune system is supposed to, the inflammation system is supposed to respond um, to show that it's working. And that happens more in the younger you are, the more it's likely to happen. Um, but too much of that can be harmful. It's like everything in moderation, you know? Um, so 
just because you don't have a reaction doesn't mean that the injection is not working. But if you have an extreme overreaction, that could also be bad. Um, and it's kind of the first time in injection history when we've been like, oh boy, I feel horrible, right? Like it's the first, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome. People are getting the injection. They're like, I feel horrible. Like I can't go to work. It's really working. Look how many antibodies I have. <laughs> like they're getting excited for it. They're like, wow, this is great. Look how effective it is. And it's like, yes, but the research we're doing shows that that actually could be temporarily harmful to your body. So it's like, yes, that's good, but we don't know long-term effects of having such high inflammation for a few days or a few weeks. Sure, sure. And we're finding, I'm having some patients where like they're getting it, like the first injection, they get it for like a few hours or a day, they get their second injection and it never goes away. Like they're stuck in this autoimmune inflammatory response mode, um, like a chronic inflammatory response syndrome, CIRS, or like these fibromyalgia and um, all these things we were just talking about, chronic fatigue syndrome, they're like stuck in that long hauler or their super inflamed state and their body can't resolve the inflammation or get out of it. So it's kind of like the over response, um, the super high antibody production that like some of these doctors are really like, woohoo, look at all these antibodies. Like that actually could cause some problems. Right, because the, the body likes to maintain homeostasis. So we don't want to get so thrown out of balance where we have major antibodies or no antibodies, right? We, we like to have a nice little balance going on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so maybe you can talk a little bit about, I know that there's not a whole lot of clinical uh, evidence for this, but there's been a tremendous amount of anecdotal. And I think with something this new, we, we can't ignore the anecdotal because that's what we have. Uh, so I think whether we know exactly what it is or not, we can make some, you, you might be better equipped to make some conjectures. And I think it's worth investigating uh, because it does seem to be quite worrisome. Uh, some of the yeah. effects of the people who are, you know, have not decided to be injected, which, you know, that's another whole separate topic. I think uh, people should have the freedom to be able to choose, right? My body, my yes. choice. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so definitely. And because we are all so unique, people do have different reactions to different things. I mean, we see it with something so simple like cold medicine or alcohol, right? Not everybody yeah. responds the same way. So you can't just say everybody needs the same treatment. Uh, so that being said, I think another really big concern is that some people have chosen that they may be immunocompromised, like they have autoimmune or they have anaphylaxis and they don't want to experiment since we don't know what these injections really are uh, completely. We don't have enough time to really know. Uh, but they're now uh, finding themselves around people who have been injected and they're they're suffering they're experiencing some symptoms that are quite concerning from what i've seen can you talk a little bit about that um yeah the big thing is no one really knows why that's happening right i know um, i yes i know right and that's too new that's but i think but yeah the conjecture about it is it's worth investigating yes. totally um so yeah, the, the big takeaway is like, we don't know exactly what's happening, but there's a couple hypotheses on what could be happening. Right. Um, it could be people are like picking up on what's called resonance, which is sort of like things you can't see, whether it's hormones, pheromones, um, can't even see germs in the air most of the, most of the time. Sure. Um, so it could be that traditionally most vaxes will 
sometimes shed or like give off some of the live or inactive um, viral material that was injected. People can sometimes like get, basically they could catch the actual illness, which is rare, or they could actually shed some of that small amount of um, germ material. But this one that shouldn't really be happening because there's no germ material in the actual injection. But there are a few mechanisms that could actually be causing it. One of which, um, there's an account that I really like actually on Instagram that does a really good job of like summarizing it called Science Cited, like science under, underscore cited. Um, and he basically goes through like what he believes some of the possible mechanisms are besides resonance theory. Um, one of which is problems with the J and J or the AstraZeneca shot with the viral vector, the adenovirus 26 could potentially be shedding in a way that like a traditional injection was shed. The second possible one is that the spike protein could be shedding because you make so many of them, like millions of them, multi-millions of them. You could be shedding some of that. Um, it could also, third possible option, it could be the antibodies because when you get the actual C illness or you get the injection for the C illness, you create antibodies against it in your skin and saliva. So people could be touching or their saliva as they talk could be going outwards and it could be the antibodies that somehow people are having a response to. Um, another way, I guess it could be a certain like toxin, like the one we're finding people are peeing out. It could be like a toxin that somehow evaporates or aerosolizes or people can somehow pick up kind of like you have your bloodhounds that are, you're like, men or women who are really sensitive to perfumes and chemicals, they could be smelling or being aware of something, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, there could be something like that. Um, and there also could be another one is a type replacement with viral shedding. So basically the C injection causes a different virus to basically pop out of somebody or a different strain or mutation to pop out of somebody and shed, which has happened with other injections. Sometimes like they'll inject for the measles and like the mumps will pop out or they'll inject for one thing and another virus will pop out, um, which is really strange, but it's kind of like if you have a really crowded classroom and you put a really big kid or big bully in, like a couple kids are gonna flee from the classroom. So that's another analogy of what could be happening. But the big thing is like, we're not really sure, but there's tens of thousands of women who are reporting really strange cycles or periods, whether they're in menopause or on birth control. Um, there was also like, there's other things that could explain it too, like um, some of the toxins that were in some of like the protests for BLM or for the lockdowns and like the gases that were used could be affecting people. It could be stress, could be a lot of other things. Like there's a lot that affects periods and cycles and bleeding. However, there's a lot of people who didn't know they were going to be around someone who was very recently injected. And they're like a postmenopausal woman who then goes and hangs out for a few hours with like a friend or a family member who was injected that they didn't know was injected. And all of a sudden they're like instantly bleeding. They're like, what the heck just happened? And you're like, well, that's a phenomenon we should pay attention to because that's not a good sign. So it's happening to tens of thousands of women and rather like there's this Dr. Um, Z Dog MD who's like, it's not possible, it makes no sense, but he gives no explanation of why tens of thousands of women are having this experience. So it's like, yes, it doesn't make sense that this would shed in a traditional way. However, something is happening. So rather than ignore all of this suffering, why don't we try to just say like, here's some possible mechanisms, but we need to do more research. And that will maybe tell us like what's actually happening. And uh, we can actually help tens of thousands of people rather than just tell them like, we don't know, sorry, but it's not this. <laughs> yeah, no problem. We 
something's wrong, but oh well. Yeah, not yeah. not a good way to handle anything. I don't think right. if, I can tell you right now if it was men getting swollen testicles, this would be over in a week. <laughs> right? Like there would be a nat- no one would be doing any injections if there were imploding testicles or they were like there was penis pain. Like this would be over so over. fast. Well, I don't know. I think on both sides is a great concern, but perhaps the uh, male aggression might uh, take over in that in that scenario, and uh, something would be done. <laughs> right. Which, uh, yeah, which would be good. Something should be done. So it should definitely be done. So, yeah. like, I'm trying to stand up for you know tens of thousands of people who are having this reaction. And be like, can we please help these people out? Somebody, 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 come and it, the reality is it probably if we're seeing tens of thousands, the likelihood is that it's actually more because that's who's coming forth. That's who's reporting it. That's who, you know, there's so much, uh, you know, shame and silencing occurring that it's really hard for people to speak up. So whatever percentage you are speaking up, we can, you know, it's a pretty good bet that there's a larger percentage who are having some sort of a symptom and reaction. So I have a couple of more things. One I'd like to address, it's just it's something you touched on a little bit earlier, uh, but I'd love to hear you expound on it, is the, you had mentioned how toxicity can look a lot like a viral response, uh, and in particular, uh, radiation. And, you know, there are a lot of theories about that as well, and you, you can or don't have to go into those, but I'd love to hear just how, how they could be similar so that people can have a sense of that. Yeah. Um, there's something called radiation pneumonitis. Pneumo is lung, but basically mm-hmm. what that means is that your lungs can be affected by radiation, whether it's like a microwave or something like 5G, which is a microwave frequency um, that could negatively impact your lungs. To what extent? We're not entirely sure, but there's been people who are um, putting out there that maybe some of this high change in EMFs or Wi-Fi or 5G could be negatively impacting someone's overall inflammatory state or toxic state or the effect of their blood vessels or their lungs function. Um, and then that could be making people more susceptible to some of the C illness or those type of things. However, um, India is having a massive spread right now in the C illness, and it doesn't look like they actually have any 5G that started there yet. So that kind of like disproves the fact that like that's the, you can't really say like, it's only that that would cause the C illness. And the C illness is just a detoxification from that because there's no 5G there and in other places where the C illness has been and has been spreading, but it could be one factor, mm-hmm. especially in major cities or places where there is a lot of electromagnetic pollution that just makes people either less likely to survive or a little bit more toxic, a little bit more inflamed, a little more stressed because um, it does affect your nervous system and your stress levels as well. Um, so I think it's definitely one factor that could be playing um, one variable, one role in why people do better or worse when they get sick from anything. Yeah, totally. Um, so my I, to wrap things up, I'd love to hear you give people a little sense of, uh, I won't even say hope, but like empowerment. What can people do to, you know, protect themselves from both the, the potential C virus specifically, you know, I, I recognize that some of the things might be similar to other types of uh, viruses or infections. Yeah. Um, and also what might somebody do? Uh, there are people who 
are going to be around people who have been injected, whether they're aware of it or they have no control over it. You know, some people live with people who have been, some people work with people who have been. And yep. so what can they do to, you know, boost themselves and do the, their best to protect themselves? Yeah, I'd say like, try to live in love, acceptance, gratitude, instead of fear, whether it's from the germ or from you know, people who have been jabbed or from the jab itself, like it makes sense to try to just like go out there with courage and love and positivity and acceptance. Um, but there, I have a list of like the top 10 ways to support or build your immune system. And I'll do them backwards. Number 10 was actually get a dog or a cat, have a pet in your life. Yeah. I need one. (laughs) They're like pure joy and love, which love is one of the fastest ways to raise your frequency and vibration and your happiness. Um, but also they the give touch you also. Like, yeah, the touch, yeah. they give you healthy probiotics that are actually acting as antidepressants. So dogs and cats are like a pet bird, lizard, whatever you like, snakes, um, <laughs> frogs, turtles, fish, whatever you got to do, whatever you're oh, into. My damn, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do you. dogs. Um, and then number nine is meditation or prayer, self-reflection time, um, some time to yourself, because usually if you haven't a question about your health or like what you should do. Usually if you spend enough time alone or with yourself in meditation, prayer, reflection, time, nature, you'll find the answer. Mm-hmm. That number eight is sleep and rest. So trying to get at least six hours of sleep a night, more likely seven to eight, maybe nine, whatever feels right for you. Yeah. Um, then ideally about nine hours of rest during the day, whether it's like eating, sleeping, napping, walking, something calm for nine hours a day. Um, then seven is movement and exercise. Like I was saying, 20 minutes of any type of movement, even walking a day helps your immune system build natural killer cells to prevent getting sick um, from the germs that are out there. Number six is to get outdoors, get some sunshine and just fresh air, breathe in your biome, as Zach Bush likes to say, breathe your biome, breathe your immune system in from nature. Um, Number five is supplements, vitamins like DC, zinc, maybe a healthy multivitamin or an immune support vitamin. Number four is to eat or drink well. So having at least three, maybe even six to nine servings of fruits or vegetables a day has been shown to lower inflammation and help people from the illness. Number three is physical touch, right? Hugging, kissing, um, anything you can do just to get some touch well, is the fastest way to actually boost your immune system. Number two is let a fever do its job because that actually builds long-term defense and helps your T cells remember so what the infection was so you never get it again. Um, You don't want a fever to go too high, but the fever actually helps your body build memory. And then the top way is to get sick. So the only way you can truly build your immune system is by getting new germs and exposing yourself to new germs and once in a while getting sick. So just appreciate the process of getting sick and realizing that it might not be a bad thing. It might be downtime, rest time, and time to create a healthy, strong, vital immune system. Awesome. And these are all 10 are things you would recommend for both scenarios at play. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Good for everybody. Good for everybody. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Is there any closing remarks you want to make? And definitely tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, closing remarks. Um, You can find me at healthassurancemovement.org or Instagram Health Assurance Movement or Dr. Bradley Campbell, Dr. Bradley Campbell, like the soup. And um, 
I think closing remarks is just to remember that you have all the answers. So trust your gut, whatever intervention you want to do, whether it's natural or conventional or an injection or not, whatever you feel comfortable with, whatever, when you're calm and relaxed and not feeling pressured in any way by all the people who are pressuring everybody right now, at the end of the day, your intuition, your gut will know what to do. And if you listen to that, you should be okay. Thank you so much. Well, definitely I'll put links to all of your, all the places people can find you. And if you guys could like, subscribe and share this with everybody that you feel would be interested, that would be awesome. And thank you so much. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.